It's an interesting question, right? It's a big question, perhaps. And we've only got a few minutes to talk about it. But we want to make sure that we answer the question tonight. But it's a question that some would say is not sort of passe. We shouldn't, why should we even be talking about this in 2021? Is it relevant to us today, given what we know and uh, modern thinking? Well, I know that it's very acceptable or it's almost the accepted thing in our sort of post-modernist world to reject any sort of uh, narrative that's bigger or transcendent above man and what man's doing in the earth. People want to reject anything that has to do with God or divine control. We live in a very humanist world where man is at the centre of everyone's thinking, it's the way they think and the things they talk about. And so there's no perspective that people will consider to be credible where we can place a higher power, where we can give recognition to God. But tonight we make no excuses We're here to talk about the God of the Bible and to explain to you what he is. We're going to do that in an interesting way because we've read from a passage of the Acts of the Apostles. Now, it's a narrative. It is a story. But it is very historically rooted in the facts, the things that we know were happening in Athens in the first century around A.D. 50. And what we've read is the words of a historian. It's the words of Luke, the physician. And he's such a good historian that the historians of note today still regard the words that he has to say, the things that he described as being an accurate, accurate description of the things that were happening at the time. And we want to answer this question of who is the God of the Bible using a speech of the Apostle Paul that he records. The Apostle Paul was a teacher and a follower of Jesus Christ. And he was very instrumental in the work that Luke records in the Acts of the Apostles. He was very instrumental in the work that led to Christianity going throughout all the world. That's a fact. We know that. It spread throughout the then known world. And first I want to show you that the setting of the speech in Acts that's recorded by Luke, this speech in Athens, and the people to whom Paul was speaking at the time, have very many similarities to you and to me and to the thinking of the men on the street and the thinking of the people in power in our government and the thinking of people all over the world today. It wasn't that different. The audience to which he was speaking is no different to you and me. It contained the same range of opinions and thoughts about God and about the deity and about creation and about what God was doing or not, whether he existed or not. And so I think 
the words that Paul had to say have great relevance to us today and I hope you will find them compelling. So when Paul rose to speak in AD 50, the Greek language and culture had overtaken all the nations of the East and even elements of the Greek political domination continued right through into the Roman Empire AD 50 when Paul was speaking. Even though the Romans had conquered them, there was still Greek as the language spoken. And Alexander's sudden death 380 years before or thereabouts had led to a civil war between the Ptolemaic and the Seleucid kings. And despite all of that, Greek still became the lingua franca of all the territories eastward of Rome. And there was still this big Greek influence. The Hellenic or the Greek culture and religion was fundamentally what we will call pluralist. You know what that means, kids? Pluralist? No? Plural? Do you know what plural means? It means more than one, right? And pluralist means we accept anything. We can have as many opinions as we like. We can accept them all. That's the sort of people that the Greek uh, culture had, uh, the sort of thinking the Greek culture had come up with. And Paul would have encountered all sorts of people. There were people who believed in the pantheon of gods of the Greeks. There were 12 of them. 12 gods. And Rome basically took those same 12 gods and renamed them. And uh, so even in Rome, they believed in that. But not all Athenians believed that. It was the centre of Greek learning. It was the university city of the Roman world. And all those long-standing Greek and local gods and all the cults that attended them were all worshipped by people then. But religion was bound up in the day-to-day life of the city. Perhaps in some respects you could say it's a bit different to our world today. But then again, there's all sorts of religions that people believe in today, that they are totally bound up in, that overtake their life, like football, like the cars they drive, like the things they have, like the things they worship. But in Greece, there was this very robust and pervasive uh, attitude towards the things they believed. And Luke records that, for instance. We... He talks in other parts of Paul's journeys about Zeus in Lystra. There was Zeus worship in Lystra. Why do we know that? How do we know that? Because he records that Paul uh, was called Hermes and Barnabas was called Zeus. And so the, the cult of Zeus worship can be recognised with a priest of Zeus who was there. And another example later in Acts chapter 19 with Diana of the Ephesians, a Uh, idol with many breasts of a goddess of fertility and she allegedly had supernatural powers to heal. So Luke records the impact of her worship on the whole city 
And this discussion about religion turned that whole city upside down. There's other examples uh, in the Acts as well. But with the Roman influence, there was also an imperial cult. You know, the Athens equivalent of make America great again, for instance. Right? This is the cult of worship of the uh, Roman power and the divine Julius, Julius Caesar. The rulers of Rome had become accepted as the epiphany of the gods and shrines were erected in their honour. In fact, the story is that they've found 17 shrines to Julius Caesar in Athens. But there were other things as well. There was the worship of mystery and magic cults. Things like initiation rites and ritual sacrifices, festivities and meditation. And these were things of novelty. They were things of a secrecy that people could be you know, brought into. They explained the cosmology or used the cosmology to explain death and even resurrection of people and their divinities. And Paul... Uh, Luke records these sort of things in Acts. We read in Acts chapter 8, the Apostle Paul rebuked a sorcerer named Simon, who when he saw real power, wanted to get access to that so that he could use it for making money as the same way as he'd been doing with his magic tricks. And also in Acts 13, Paul met a magician and a false prophet on the island of Paphos. And we remember too in Acts 19 that in Ephesus they burnt books of magic. Must have been a few books because they were worth 50,000 pieces of silver. That's a lot of books and uh, a lot of value attributed to them. So from this sort of quick glance, we can see that Paul's world was crowded with idols and gods. All sorts of idols. Idols of men, idols of gods, idols of past Athenian warriors. And it's not surprising that the teaching of the Bible, which says that followers of God, the God of the Bible, once were idolaters. So there's a distinct difference. If you're a follower of the Bible, you're not an idolater. They had turned from idolatry. Also, we know that the worship of these idols was very pervasive. So much so that the meat sold in the markets had been sacrificed to idols oftentimes. And this caused a bit of a crisis of conscience for people who were no longer idolaters. What were they to do with this? We read of that in Acts as well. And in 1 John 5 verse 21, there's this warning. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. So we can see that in Athens, it's not at all surprising that Paul, talking about the God of the Bible, is going head to head with the religion, the culture, the very thinking in everybody's minds in Athens. 
not that different to today when we talk about the God of the Bible to many people today. I'm sure you know what I mean. People who believe in evolution, people who are atheist or agnostic. They don't know whether there's a God. They don't really care. And he has, if they do believe in him, oftentimes they have no real commitment to him or understanding of what role he has in their life. And I just want to make sure I set the scene for this review of the speech of Paul in Acts 17. Because there's a lot of things about Paul's world that are different to our world. I want you to see, though, how similar his world was to our world when it comes to this philosophy of pluralism. The ideologies of the world we live in, a world where the God of the Bible has been dismissed, they fundament, people fundamentally reject any concept where man is not at the centre that I talked about. You know, so many of the ideologies of the world are underpinned by a belief in Darwinian evolution. But that's not all. I've travelled numerous times to India and China, and certainly India feels a lot like Athens. I suggest in India you're perhaps almost never out of sight, maybe in a hotel room, but even there, depends on the hotel. But you're almost never out of sight of painted images, of idols, of symbols. So pervasive that it doesn't matter whether you're in the office, you're in the factory, you're walking on the street, you're in a restaurant, you're at the entry to somebody's house, there's gods in front of you of all sorts and shapes. Gods of mythical men, gods of real men and every imaginable animal and many that aren't animals just with animal features. And in China too, at the steps of most every house or apartment or office or business, there are these designs, there are shrines, there are idols, there are trinkets, there are decorations to ward off spirits and decorations to invite spirits in and to promote health and wealth and happiness and other blessings. It's easy to think here in Australia that we're rather removed from that. But putting aside the other idols and gods that Western society seems to worship, I can think of numerous examples in my experience where my business acquaintances and colleagues and customers resort to these idols of China and India and whatever in a seriousness that's almost comical. One of them, for instance, had a collection of gods on his the sideboard in, on his office, like, you know, uh, just, just sitting there. And on one occasion, I was leaving for India, and he uh, specifically took me uh, aside and made reference to this Ganesh idol. Now, Ganesh is uh, readily identified by his elephant head, and apparently he is the diva of intellect and wisdom, but he's the principal deity of traders, and for many in India, he's the god of wealth. And such was his seriousness that I got chided for chuckling uh, at it and told it was worth investing in his little ritual uh, for the sake of uh, this business trip 
and for good luck. And I had a similar uh, situation with an atheist businessman who had on his desk a green jade frog with a gold uh, coin in its mouth and would constantly make reference to this green jade, jade uh, frog and touch it on the, on the head and touch the coin and all this sort of thing. So we don't need to think that modern day worship is so clearly defined by people who believe in gods or God and people who don't. All sorts of people in our society have this view about magic and good luck charms and bad luck omens and numbers in lotto games and clothing to wear when they're playing sport so they're going to win and rituals to follow when they're facing a bowler in cricket. You know, these, these are just a few of the examples that show that our society is a very superstitious society, whether we are Asian or European or what. But Paul was in hostile territory. This is the words of, uh, of a, um, from, a, from a book describing the religious background in the New Testament. It says, The masses of pagans were polytheists. They believed in lots of gods. Business, government, home life, theatre, athletics, all were under the care of the various gods. And for pagans, it wasn't enough just to worship a god as Jews and Christians did. They viewed monotheists as a little better than atheists. It was quite hostile territory that Paul went into. Now, I don't know your uh, background or your beliefs about God or about deities or the place of idols or good luck charms or any of that. And I don't know if you believe the Bible or if you believe the Bible is of divine origin or if you think it's a man-made book. What I do know is that this historical account of the Apostle Paul here in Acts 17 is very compelling and straightforward introduction to the God of the Bible. And we've just got you know, half an hour to go through it. But let me assure you that almost every reference he makes to the God of the Bible can be referenced and substantiated by looking from cover to cover. After all, the Bible makes a claim. It claims to be God's revelation to man. And it's not surprising then that almost every page you turn to, almost every word is a revelation about something of the God of the Bible. And we're just having a brief introduction from the Apostle Paul tonight. What I do know is that it's my pleasure to introduce you to it today. So I hope you find it compelling and People of all sorts of backgrounds found it compelling, even in the first century, and including those who lived in pantheist Athens. So we read in uh, verse 13 to 15 of the background of Paul ending up in Rome. He'd been kicked out of Thessalonica, and immediately he was sent away for his safety uh, to go, as it were, to the sea, and his compatriots or his uh, fellow travellers, Silas and Timotheus, uh, abode there still. And some friends of his conducted him in verse 15 and brought him to Athens, and he sent a commandment back to his friends, Silas and Timotheus, saying to come to him with all speed. And so they departed. 
So he was fleeing Jewish persecutors and um, because he'd been preaching Jesus to the Jews in Thessalonica and he was there awaiting his companions, Silas and Timothy, to join him. And that's where we read in verse 16 that while he waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Now, the Greek word that the original record of Luke uh, was written, well, the original record Luke wrote in was in Greek, and the Greek word he uses to say that his spirit was stirred in him is the same Greek word from which we get an English word, paroxysm, like a fit, an epileptic fit, right? So his spirit's so stirred up in him, it's like he's having a fit. What's he having a fit about? Because the city, he says, is wholly given to idolatry. Now Luke liked to turn a phrase. And in the Greek, that really means it was thick with idols. Thick with idols. And therefore, he disputed in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the marketplace daily with them that meet him. Uh, What you see there on the screen in front of you is one sort of picture of that. Um, That's probably about uh, 350 uh, BC. So it's a bit before Paul. And so you won't see there any of the temples to the 17 temples to, you know, Julius Caesar, for instance, or other temples that had been built since. But it hopefully gives you a view of what we're dealing with. And it's actually quite historically accurate. So what we're going to do is just have a look at what Paul could see when he was in Athens. A bit like it, you know, not exactly. And we can sort of have a fly around. Have a fly around like we're an eagle. And when it says that Paul was in the market, it's the agora, right? And so you can see... um, See there, just uh, behind the eagle, or around, there. That's the Agora. Now, that probably doesn't look as impressive as the time when, uh, when Paul was there, but uh, we can have a fly around and fly down and sort of take a bit of a look at what, uh, what it was like around uh, this area. So... You know, you see all these people uh, living here. So what, what can you see up there on the hill? Anything strike you? I mean, look at that. Does that stand out to you? Well, that's the Acropolis, and that's where all those temples were. And here, um, sorry, you know, this is the area where uh, the Agora was, where uh, Paul had been uh, speaking with the Jews and speaking with other devout persons, people who believed in other gods. So we'll fly up a bit higher. 
and we'll uh, look over here. Now, this is the Acropolis. Now, a lot of this is still available uh, to view today, but it doesn't have all this bright colour, all this gold and all that sort of stuff, um, you know, uh, visible um, today. But um, what I want you to take notice of is the number of idols that there are around, right? And if, if you think this is a lot of idols, then I think... Uh, you know, by the time of Paul, there would have been even more. You see all these uh, temples being built. Well, by the time of uh, Paul, they would have been built. And here's a small shrine down there, another big shrine, um, more shrines around there, um, you know, in front of us. But just there, right in the middle of the screen at the moment, is a hill. That hill is called, variously, Mars Hill or the hill of Ares, or it became known by the title of the, um, so that, that hill that you can see, oops, there. So the Areopagus was the council of Athens, and that's the place where they would sit. And there, um, off to the right, in front of us, you can see those buildings with lots of columns, So those ones down here, and uh, this, this long building that the eagles, that's sort of obscured by the eagle there at the moment, that's more of the Agora. And by the time of Paul, more of the, uh, the Stoa, that's what they call these long buildings, more of these Stoa had been built. And in those Stoa, all sorts of things happened. There were places for people to trade, so they had sort of storerooms and little shops, there were places for people to have meetings and there were places of argument and discussion because, after all, Athens was a university town. So here we are again coming over the uh, Acropolis and look at that. You know, that's the, that's the uh, reason that uh, Athens was called Athens. You can see the... Uh, temple of Athena, and that's Athena, sorry, that's Athena there. And uh, you can see her towering over that city. Right. So back to the, back to the question. So um, we've got this picture of Mars Hill, and uh, we can see that Paul was disputing with the Jews and other devout people, as we've mentioned. But he was willing to speak to anyone who would listen. And in verse 18, we see a reference to two of these rival schools of philosophy of the Athenians. There was the Epicureans and the Stoics, and they came across him in the Stoa, in these sort of marketplaces where uh, out of the uh, harsh sun, Paul would be found uh, teaching, and then these Epicureans and Stoics came to talk, came and uh, talked about him. You see what they say in verse 18. Some said, what will this babbler say? And that word, uh, you know, others say he seems to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus. So there are these two people. There's 
the Epicureans. Well, these are people who followed Epicurus from the 3rd and 4th century BC, a philosopher, philosopher of that time, and they'd built this philosophy around what he taught. They were sort of materialistic. They taught that the goal of life is happiness and that the gods existed, but they were indifferent to human affairs. The world wasn't created. Man didn't have a purpose or need a future after death and that the pursuit of life was about pleasure and peace. And then there's the Stoics. Now, Stoics comes down to us in our language today because we know about Stoicism. It's a word that is still used today. And this is the acceptance with courage and indifference to, that's a bit of a bad spelling, that's me, uh, to the vicissitudes and painful experiences of life. So that's what Stoicism is and it comes from their sort of attitudes. But they taught that it was important to live harmonious with nature and they emphasised man's rational abilities over emotions. So they're saying, you know, we could think our way through all the troubles we might get into, but they had a very great moral earnestness and a high sense of duty. So they might be like the uh, Jain people. I do business with a, a Jain family in India. And they're so concerned about living harmoniously with nature that they don't eat potatoes. Why wouldn't you eat potatoes? You know, India's vegetarian. Well, you don't eat potatoes because you have to dig in the ground. If you dig in the ground, you might accidentally kill a bug or a snail or a whatever. So, you know, that's the sort of people they are. Lovely people and great moral earnestness and a high sense of duty. So, what do we read in verse 18? There's quite clearly opposition to what Paul's saying, but the word Luke chooses to use is, what does this seed picker say? It's a derogatory sort of term. It's suggesting he was a sort of worthless person. He's picking up some bits of secondhand information, other people's ideas and opinions, and doesn't understand them. And they said that he sets forth two new gods, Jesus and the resurrection. Well, Actually, the Greek word for resurrection is anastasis. And it sounds like a female name in Greece, right? So they'd perhaps thought that here's a female deity, a form of Jesus or an equal of Jesus. And he's a dangerous man because he's setting forth new gods. And indeed, sometime earlier, Socrates, famous uh, philosopher, had been charged with the same charge. And that had led to his death. In verse 19, we find that they took hold of him or they grasped him or they perhaps led him or perhaps even arrested him and brought him to Mars Hill. Um, and Mars, as we say, the Roman god of war, but uh, the equivalent of Ares, the Greek god of war. And that's how the place called, came to be called Areopagus or the Council of the Hill of Ares. And this was the place where the ruling body of Athens met. So it was the highly respected, highest court of Athens. It was renowned for 
important cases like murder trials and that sort of thing, but also important cases about religion. And they sought to know. We want to know, they said. A great respect for knowledge was key to what they did. And it seems that this was a very respected court. And what does Luke say in verse 21? Well, he says, For all the Athenians and the strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. So he's setting the context for us, like a good historian describing what he sees, they're habitually discussing some new thing. And this is where Paul perhaps spoke <coughs> his speech to the unknown God. So this is zooming in, and you can see these, uh, these little seats here with the people there, and perhaps this is what it looked like. Paul's day would have been quite a few hundred years later and probably more development than this. But there would have been Paul standing there, towering behind him is the Acropolis, full of all those gods and that big Athena statue that we can see there. That's the context in which he makes his speech. Thanks, Steve. So Paul stands up in the middle of, well, it says here Mars Hill. Probably it means in the middle of the council that met on Mars Hill. The Greek word's the same. And he begins politely. Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things... Ye are too superstitious. And that reads like it might be a little bit derogatory, but indeed the language might not be quite so uh, direct. Um, it's, it's more an observation that they're very religious. So, and why does he say they're very religious? Because he'd passed by and beheld their devotions or the things, that, things of worship, the things that they were worshipping. So the objects of their worship. And he says, For as I passed by and held this, I found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. So what he says is, you've got an altar here, that says there is an unknown God and you don't know the God I'm worshipping. So what that altar is, is a very frank admission. You are admitting that there is a God we don't know and I'm here, he says, to tell you about it. I'm here to tell you about it. He doesn't commend them for their idolatry. He points to all the things of their worship, probably, you know, Plenty of them around him because apparently on Mars Hill they had statues of uh, various uh, past rulers and the, and the like. From his vantage point, what could he see? Up there on the hill, he could see that massive idol and all those other gods that were surrounding it and all the uh, accoutrements of their worship. So he says that he's going to educate them on this. Well, there's another, uh, another photo worth thinking about. You can't quite see the temple of worship. There's one just in the foreground there. 
You can't actually see it in this photo. Uh, there's temples of sporting prowess there, right? Can you see them? A couple of them. The uh, you know, tennis centre and uh, the Adelaide Oval. And there's temples of entertainment. There's the entertainment centre, the festival centre, all sorts of other entertainment going on there. There's the temples of the celebration of war. You can see their memorial, uh, whatever it's called, the, the, uh, the army uh, parade ground. And you can see, maybe you can see uh, the North Terrace memorials. And there are temples of religion, as I say, churches, the city of churches. There are monuments to kings and queens. What else is there? There are logos galore, cars, brands, food, media, businesses, entertainment. And there are stars. There are sports stars, just like in Athens. There are rulers that we worship, just like, you know, in Athens. There are media stars. Perhaps they didn't have as much media. There are comedians. They probably had them. There are entertainment Stars, movie stars, all that sort of stuff. I put it to you that Paul could stand in any of our cities today, including our city of Adelaide, and he could say forcefully that we are very religious. He doesn't mean that we go to church every Sunday. He just means that everywhere you look, you can see the things that people worship. The big billboards that are telling you the things that people worship. They're telling you the things that people desire. The, the advertisers are putting them there because people do desire them. But in all of this, there is a vacuum. There's an ignorance. And strangely, there's evidence of it too. You know, we still have prayers in Parliament. What's that about? We have national anthems with references to God. We have God spoken about on Anzac Day when we're celebrating war, for instance. We've got respect for church leaders of all persuasions, from the Dalai Lama to the Pope and everyone in between. But there is a vacuum in our existence that we can't talk about who the God of the Bible is. And that's what Paul's here doing. He's teaching us about it and coming to proclaim it to us. So he says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. There's one creator, God, of all the universe and its contents. You know, the Epicureans had a view that this was some chance combination of atoms that fit in perfectly well in our society today. And the Stoics had a view of the pantheism of the deity, right? There's all sorts of gods, they all matter. We don't really know, they don't care too much about us. You know, whatever, just let's not upset any of them and, you know, touch one on the head and do whatever we need to do. But the God of the Bible is most eloquently and convincingly described here. He doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. He's the same God that made the heavens and the earth. Unlike, you know, the conceptions of deities of all other sorts who were responsible for their bit of this and that, you know, a bit of heaven. He's responsible for, you know, the sun or he's the God of the moon or the Mar or Mars or whatever. No, 
He's the maker of the world. He's the maker of the heaven and the earth. But not just that. He says he's not worshipped with man's hands as though he needed anything because he gives to all life, breath and all things. He governs and cares for all that he has made. And whatever view of God you might have had before you came here or before you heard this YouTube, God cares about you. And everyone listening to this talk and everybody in that Athenian audience, however cynical they might have been. But is Paul's powerful thought that he is the Lord of heaven and earth. The concept that he is somehow confined to a man-made shrine like in Athens or the millions in India and the millions in China. Indeed, he is most unlike any of them. But he doesn't live in temples. It follows that there's nothing that we can build for him. We can't sort of build him a home. We can't domesticate him and put him in a place. The God of the Bible is a benevolent God. He cares for us. And all we can do is respond to his love. And he continues, nor is he worshipped with men's hands. This is the contrast between God of the Bible and his creation. He's not served by men. He doesn't lack anything that I could give him or you could give him. God has everything he needs and he gives it to us. He gives to all. And intriguingly, perhaps almost compellingly, the Epicureans and the Stoics on this point would have agreed with Paul. He continues to discuss the creation of man. He says, he has made from one every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. Various translations might have one breath, but it, I think it refers to one man. He's made from Adam. All the men of every nation to dwell on the face of the earth. And so he positions man as the central point the focus of the purpose of God and not a part of some sort of grand mythology with loose connection to humanity. And he made one man, that's a very, pretty simple statement, he made from Adam really, he's saying, Adam, the first man, he's made every nation of men. Now Athens thought that it was superior. You know, there were Greeks and non-Greeks, simple as that. And if Athens thought itself superior, and I don't think Australians, Chinese, Indians are much different. We th somehow think that our nations are superior, or perhaps we've got some racial superiority, but we're just another nation of men. So it didn't matter what was happening in the wars of Athens or the wars of Rome, the advancement of the Greek and the Roman empires. What was happening? Paul says he'd predetermined 
their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. So they would come and they'd go based on the time God said they would come and they'd go. And they'd have this little space of territory. This would be their home where they'd live if he wanted them to. The boundaries of their dwellings weren't for their own prowess. It wasn't some blessing from him. He predetermined it. He had control of their life. But why was that? Why did God have control of their life? So that they would seek him, he says, in the hope that they might even search for him in the darkness. This is interesting language, isn't it? It's powerful language that reminds us that the God of the Bible promises you that the word, the Bible, can provide a light to your life. It, it might be in the darkness of Athenian idolatry. It might be in the darkness of COVID or in the government restrictions or governments that exploit us or control us. But God's word is the light and he promises he's not far from each of us. That's what he says. That's his promise. We can trust him. It's a personal closeness. That's the sort of God the God of the Bible is. He wants to be close to you and to me. It's an offer of a relationship. If we just turn to him, if we reject the darkness of the world for the lightness of his word. The universe didn't come into being by chance it came about by divine design and intention and man's position in it is because of that. He chose to do it. And that matters for nations, but it matters for individuals. It matters for you. It matters for me. We're all part of his design and his intention. So it is God's purpose that we should seek him. It's not something that is certain and in our control, that we would find him. Except we cast the darkness away and open ourselves up to his promise. He said, Jesus said, to him that knocketh, I will open. So the idea of searching in darkness expresses this concept very clearly. Without God, we are just groping in the dark. And he quotes a Greek poet. Some say it's the poet Epimenides who lived in the 6th century in Crete. But God, he says, is the source of life. He provides power for activity. We're dependent on him for our physical, spiritual and intellectual life. We're his children because of his special creation and his intent. So therefore, he says, a very telling turn in his attention, right? If you're listening to his speech, he says, therefore, sit up and take notice. God is man's creator. We can't imagine the divine nature looking like all those idols of silver, gold and stone or anything man could devise because we simply don't know. Inanim inanimate objects can't possibly do credence to the creator of the world. It doesn't matter if we believe that man's the pinnacle of evolution or somehow that some karmic journey towards the Godhead is going to get us somewhere or the power of good luck. None of that 
recognises this. We are the offspring of God and we are obliged, therefore, to recognise how our imagination doesn't confine God. Human imagination doesn't confine God. And he goes on to state emphatically that the times of ignorance, the times of the nations that perhaps that he'd spoken of earlier, God winked at. He overlooked their ignorance. Well, he overlooks their ignorance, but he overlooks yours and mine too. It's not indifferent. He's treating us with patience. It's not his intention that people should persist in idolatry. He's now summoning people, he says, summoning all people everywhere, in fact, to change their ways, to repent. He wants a radical change of mind and behaviour, particularly, he says, in this area of idolatry. Idolatry at Athens was pervasive. I think we've identified it's pervasive in our world. He wants us to replace that idol worship and worship him. Whatever it is for you, whatever it is for me, worship him in obedience to his command instead. And why? Because there is a certainty of judgment, he says. It's underpinned by two truths, he states. What are they? He said a day he will judge the world and he's raised his son from the dead, the man whom he has ordained. And he says, the judge, therefore, is this resurrected man, Jesus. And what is he going to do? He's going to judge the world in righteousness. So that leaves us with Paul's description of the God of the Bible. There's one creator. He's the one creator God of the whole universe. He's the maker and sustainer of all men, all shapes, colours, sizes, nationalities, races. But he's purposeful in his design and his plan. He's in control of the world and the nations. He's in control of your life and mine. And he asks us to seek him. He's promising that he is near when we do. And unlike men's conceptions... He's far above our thoughts, but he promises to judge the world, to judge the individuals in it as well in righteousness. But he assures us of his promise because he raised his son, Jesus Christ, from the dead.